and turning your copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew and also Genesis 38. If you're using a pew Bible, it's found on page 807 and also page 32. We are finally out of 1 Peter, and our new Advent sermon series is entitled A Very Dysfunctional Christmas, looking at the family of Jesus in the genealogy of Matthew. And we are going to see, I'm going to warn you, that Jesus is going to come from a very broken family, not one like Ozzy and Harriet. You will see the lives of his ancestors filled with lies, adultery, and even murder. But you see... This was consistent with his message and also his mission of grace that Jesus came for people like them, which means he came for people like me and you. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 1, we'll read the first three verses and then we'll flip back. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Now flip back to Genesis 38. And we're going to hear the story of Judah and Tamar. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give to you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Now skip down to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and she said, and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, 
And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. I told you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand and prepare our hearts. We pray, amen. You may be seated. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Why did I have to bring my relatives for this sermon? And I know others of you are asking, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas or Advent? And besides not even seeming appropriate for Christmas or Advent, it doesn't seem appropriate for any season. I doubt any of you, when asked, what is your favorite chapter in the Bible, might say, Genesis 38. I'd just like to spend all of my devotions in Genesis 38. So I did what any wise preacher does. I went and looked for other sermons preached on this passage. I found four, but one of them was Tim Keller, so everything will be okay. The other one that was very helpful was by an Irish pastor by the name of Edward Donnelly. Let me try to give you a little bit of context for this story. The Judah Tamar account is really seen by many as an interruption to the story of Joseph. The latter half of Genesis is really all about the story of Joseph. And this is inserted in the midst of that narrative. This plot contains dysfunction, death, disguise, prostitution, a paternity surprise, and it culminates in the birth of twins. And I would submit to you that that is really the theme of this passage, verses 27 through 30. Why? Well, I think the whole key to understanding this passage is the name given to the firstborn, Perez. What does the name Perez mean? Perez means breach, or it's also translated breakthrough. I think the whole theme of this chapter is about the breakthrough or the breach of grace. And I want to walk you through it, and I want you to see the breakthrough of grace to Judah, the breakthrough of grace to Tamar, and then also the breakthrough of grace to us. First, Judah. We didn't read it, but if you look back in verse 1, it says that Judah went down from his brothers. This is an echo of the story of Joseph in chapter 39 when he went down to Egypt. Now it's talking about a geographical change in location, but I think what the author is really getting at is that Judah is not just leaving one place physically, but there is also a spiritual descent. Now who was Judah? Let me jog your memories a little bit. Remember, Judah was the fourth of the twelve sons of Jacob, birthed from Leah, the unwanted and unloved wife. Remember, he was one of the treacherous brothers who threw his own brother into a pit and then sold Joseph to the Midianites who sold him into slavery in Egypt. Then he and his brothers took 
Joseph's coat of many colors, and they smeared goat blood all over it. And they took it to their father, Jacob, and said, Your son was killed by a wild animal. And that is what had happened right before we read this chapter. And then we read that Judah is leaving his family. He's leaving the promised land. And why is he doing that? Well, we're not told in the text, but maybe we can use a sanctified imagination for a moment. Why is Judah leaving his family? Perhaps every time he looks at his brothers, he's reminded of what they did to their brother Joseph. And a little part of him feels a piece of guilt. Perhaps every time he looks at his father, he's just angry and he's mad because his father is overcome with perpetual grief and he's reminded of how much his father loved his other son and not him. Now we're not told the exact reason, but he left. He left the promised land and he went to Canaan. Now, it is wise sometimes to change our situations to change our environments. When one environment is bad for us, it's good to sometimes move to another environment. But Judah is not simply doing this because he's walking away from his covenant family, but he's also walking away from the covenant God, the Lord. You see, as he goes into this land of Canaan, he assimilates He adopts the pagan practices of this land. He engages in false worship, social evils, and personal wickedness. You see, one of the things that we need to realize is that sometimes it's good to change our situations. Sometimes it's helpful to go into a different environment. But even if we do, there's one thing that doesn't leave us. It's us. You see, sin and darkness is not always out there. It's in here, and it follows us wherever we go. How do we see this in the life of Judah? We see that he was living in rebellion in several different ways. In verse 2, we see that he takes a wife, and the only reason that he chose this wife was for her physical appearance. It was as as if he was choosing a brood mare. And then we're told that his first two sons were so evil that the Lord put them to death. We're not told all their specific sins, but it was on par with Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Judah refused to offer protection and provision for his daughter-in-law Tamar, sending her away saying, don't call us, we'll call you. And then Judah has sex with someone he thinks is a prostitute, leaving his seal, cord, and staff, the equivalent of his wallet, on his way to sheep shearing, similar to Mardi Gras or spring break, a time of partying in the Canaanite religion. Three months later, he is told his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant and guilty of adultery. In the Hebrew, he only uses two words, Burn her. Overkill for sure. Judah is well on his way to the verge of no return. Look at the dysfunctional family of Jesus. This was the family of Abraham. 
He was blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. And just three generations later, we see the family that knew more about God and his ways on the verge of unraveling. It is easy to see the darkness of Judah. But where is their grace? Where is grace going to break through in this story? Grace comes through Tamar in verse 25. As she is being brought out, as she is being taken in a really dramatic fashion from her home, as she's being taken to be burned at the stake, she pulls out a few objects. And she says, take these objects to my father-in-law and also take him a word. Tim Keller says that this word is perhaps the most important word other than Perez in this chapter. What is this word? You see, the word that is given to her father-in-law is a question. And the question is this. Do you identify or do you recognize these? That word recognize means to see or really to discern. You see, what she's asking him Do you recognize these objects? More than that, do you recognize yourself? Do you see what you have become? Do you see your own sexual immorality? Do you see your own hardness of heart? Do you recognize what you have become? You see, this word, identify or recognize, was used earlier by Judah and his brothers. When they took the coat that was smeared in goat's blood, they took it to their father Jacob, and they said, do you identify, do you recognize these garments? God is calling attention to Judah's previous sin. He is being asked, do you recognize who you are? Do you realize that you have become the father that you hate? Do you see the similarity between your life and his? Do you see that you have lost sons? Do you see that in trying to protect your youngest son, you have ostracized and hurt others? You also have been duped by a mysteriously veiled woman into a different relationship than the one expected. He was being confronted by who he really was. And the Lord was asking Judah, do you recognize yourself? And by God's grace, what is his answer? The answer is yes, because the word recognize or identify occurs again. And he says, I identify the signet, the cord, and the staff. And he says, she is more righteous than I. What's occurring right now in this story is a spiritual awakening to Judah. Very much like when the prophet Nathan came to David and shared a parable about his own sin. And when Nathan looked at David and said, you are the man, and David was cut to his heart. This moment is similar to the prodigal son when he's eating the pig slop. And he comes to his senses and realizes that even the servants in my father's house have it better than me. Judah is having a spiritual awakening. 
You know where this whole episode occur in verse 14, Enam. It literally translates the opening of the eyes. Isn't that amazing? Judah's eyes are being opened to his own sin and they're being opened to grace. He is being clobbered by the love of God for his family. Do you remember the parable of the lost sheep? Real shepherds say that when you find a lost sheep, they don't jump up and down and say, yes, I've been found, take me home. But lost sheep are scared to death and the only way to save them is to knock them over, tie them up, and take them home struggling. In other words, when lost sheep are found, they don't feel like they're being found. When lost sheep are being helped, they don't feel like they're being helped. When lost sheep are being saved, they don't feel like they're being saved sometimes. They are being clobbered by a gracious shepherd. You know, though we don't like it, that's often how spiritual awakening occurs in our own lives. This past week, I know this will be shocking to some of you, but I realize that I'm not omnicompetent, I'm not omnipowerful, I'm not uh, omniscient. I don't know all things. And I wasn't just reminded of that because my family was in town and they reminded me of that. But I'm reminded by that on a daily basis as we shepherd this congregation, as we face situations and wade into the mess of one another's lives, that we don't have the wisdom that we need You know, James and I and the elders take this very seriously. He leaned over to me the last service and he said, doesn't it blow you away that we are going to have to give an account for all the souls that are a part of this congregation? Yes, we feel the weight of that. Yes, we feel the privilege of that. And as I applied Genesis 38 to my own life and to our life as a body of Christ at MPC, this was my prayer Lord, show us our sin. Help us to recognize who we are. And Lord, help us to know grace, to know our Savior, to know Jesus, so that we can be a people that move out into the world with honesty and truth and grace and love. Identify our sin and our Savior. And the amazing thing is this, The Lord listens and he answers. He listened to Judah and he answered. Now remember this key word, identify? It comes up again later in Genesis. Do you remember Judah and his brothers had to go to Egypt to buy grain because there was a famine in the promised land? And they go before Joseph whom they do not recognize, whom they do not identify, and then Joseph test their heart. He says, you've got to leave the other son of Rachel, Benjamin, with me. And the sons know that their father will die if he loses his other son of Rachel. And who speaks first? Judah. Judah pleads with Joseph. He says, take me instead, my life for his life. I'm willing to become a slave for Pharaoh so that Benjamin might go free. And then Joseph identifies himself. 
He has been testing their hearts and he is certain that their hearts have been transformed by grace, that Judah has had a spiritual awakening and now the light of the gospel has come into his life and he is completely a different person. You know what's amazing? When you look at the blessings that are given to the sons of Jacob in Genesis 49, Judah is the one who is given the blessing that the son of David, the Messiah, will come from his line. It says the lion cub of Judah will come from you. It says the scepter will not depart from your family, a symbol of kingship, that the king is going to come from you, Judah. It's utterly amazing. And that's why the apostle John, in the book of Revelation, calls Jesus what? The lion of Judah. Do you see grace here? Do you see it all over the place? It's greater than Judah's sin. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Grace breaks through to the darkness of Judah. Now what about Tamar or Tamar? Let's look at her for a moment. Who was she? She was a Canaanite. She was a pagan. She was outside the covenant family of God. But she married into it. But the first son whom she married, the son of Judah, he died. The Lord put him to death because he was so wicked. And then she was given to the second son. But he also died because he was so wicked. And so Judah blames her for the death of his wicked sons and says, away from me. Don't call us. We'll call you. She is outside of the covenant family once again, twice widowed. Now for us in our culture, we don't understand the weight of widowhood. You see, for her, by not being allowed to marry again, she lost her livelihood. She couldn't just go out and get another job and provide for herself. That's why what was known as the Leverite marriage law existed in ancient Near Eastern court cultures, the Hittites and also the Israelites, that if a spouse died, the father-in-law was bound to protect and to provide for his daughter-in-law either financially or to provide another husband for her who would carry on the line of the other sons. She was betrayed by Judah, the one who was supposed to protect her. You see, we need to understand this, is that God has a special heart for the vulnerable. You read about this all through the Psalms. In Psalm 146, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. He watches over the aliens, sustains the fatherless and the widow. Psalm 68 says, Sing to God, Sing praise to his name, a praise to the father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. And Isaiah says, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. God is very concerned for the vulnerable. God is very concerned for social justice. Do you know when the Israelites and Judah, when they were taken captive by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the sins for which they were judged were these for failing to protect the vulnerable in their culture. 
I don't have time to flesh it out, but it's a worthy question of us to ask ourselves. Who are the vulnerable today? And who are we to be protecting and defending and providing for? And what we see in this story, in this darkness, we see justice and grace come to Tamar in verse 26. When Judah said, she is more righteous than I, Judah uses a word that a judge would use in a courtroom when rendering a verdict and when weighing the evidence against himself and the evidence against Tamar. He says, righteousness, justice is on her side. He realizes that he has been guilty of not only sexual immorality, but he has been guilty of social injustice. Now, we have to ask the question, Does that mean that God was okay with what Tamar did, with her sexual entrapment? Absolutely not. Though her motives may have been good to preserve the line of the other two brothers of the sacred seed, it does not make her actions okay. And that's where we see grace break through. Look at how the Bible nuances it. It does not say she is righteous or she is guiltless and innocent, but she is more righteous than I. He's essentially saying she is guilty of sexual immorality, but Judah admits his guilt of social injustice and sexual immorality. Both are horrible in the eyes of the Lord. Tamar is going after justice, and God's grace provides it. Where did she come from? From the land of darkness, from Canaan, And now she is a bright light and a trophy of God's grace. And she is honored for her courage to risk her life and for her motherhood. How do we know this? If you look in Ruth, when the elders pray for Ruth, they say, may your house be a blessing and blessed like the house of Tamar. Do you know who David and Absalom named their beautiful daughters after? They named their children, their daughters after Tamar. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, who is included first in the genealogy of Jesus? Who is the first woman? Not Abigail, not Eve, not Deborah. Who is it? It is Tamar. She is a trophy of God's grace. She has been brought into the family of God. And again, we see that God's grace is all over the place. His grace is greater than our sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now, let's just take a few moments and ask this question. How does this apply to us? How does grace break through to us? Well, friends, we have to admit that we have our own propensity to justify some of our sinful actions. I've heard them, and I use them in my own life. It's so easy to shift the reality of just how selfish and lazy and stupid that sin makes us. We come up with excuses like, I couldn't help it, or you would too if you had a spouse like mine, or I just had a bad day and I need this. Or it isn't really that bad when you consider all the sins in the world. Or you look at the other person and you say, at least I'm not like them. 
will point out someone else's sexual immorality without looking at our sin of social injustice. We need grace to understand our own heart and our own rebellious mind before a holy God. But you see, we also need his grace to see a greater Judah, to see the second Judah, the one who comes to us and fulfills God's covenant promise. We need the one who will enable us to recognize our own sinful condition and our own amazing Savior. And when Jesus comes to us, the second Judah, what does he say to believers? He says, truly, in spite of all your sin, you are righteous. How can he say that? How can we be declared righteous? You see, the first Judah was going to punish Tamar for her sins, but the second Judah takes the punishment for our sins. You see, his righteousness is imputed to us, and our sinfulness, our darkness, all of the bad things that we have done are imputed to him. And so that when we stand before the holy and heavenly gracious Father, he looks at you and he sees Jesus Christ and he sees you as perfectly righteous. And do you know, Christian, that right now in Christ you can do nothing more or nothing less to make God love you any differently? That's amazing grace. That's what you and I need Maybe some of you are here and you can identify with Judah. He came from the covenant family. His parents were Christians. He was raised in the church. He had been around the sacraments all of his life. And now he has walked away from the Lord. And grace is calling him back. Maybe some of you are in that same position today. Maybe you grew up in the church Maybe you've walked away from the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, grace is breaking through to you right now, calling you back. Because we have to understand, children, God has no spiritual grandchildren. You will not be saved by your family. You will not be saved by your morality. But there is one thing that will save you, and his name is, is Jesus. Now what about Tamar? Perhaps some of you identify more strongly with her. She's outside the covenant family of God. She poses as a prostitute. And maybe some of you identify with her and you think you barely squeaked into the kingdom of God and you're a second class Christian and you look around this room and you think all these other people have it together. They don't. We are all on level ground. We are all sinners. There are no second-class Christians in the family of God. Maybe God is calling out to you today, to the Tamars, that it doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, that grace can break through to you. You see, it's really important to understand this. The Bible is not primarily a book about moral stories that are supposed to inspire us. The Bible is about one theme, it's grace, and it's about one hero, and it's not me or you, it's Jesus. And it's about everything that he has done for us, not what we will do for him. It's a place where the message of grace is this. 
is that where sinners receive grace and sinners tell other sinners where they found grace. That's our hope and prayer for this church, that we would be beggars telling other beggars where we found food, that this community would be a place where grace flows like water to the deepest point. We pray that this community would embody grace, love, and truth. As we look around, we are all Tamars. We are all Judas. We are all saved by grace. And you know, we may have a temptation to think, you know what? I have friends and I have family, or even myself. I am too far for grace to reach me. Let me close with the story. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to Cuba with a group from this church and seven other churches. And God is doing some amazing things in Cuba right now. They are just very receptive to the gospel. And hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands are coming to faith in Christ. And as we went around with the translator and a host from one of the church plants, they would take us to their family and friends and together we would share the gospel. And I think because they knew I was a pastor, they thought I had some type of special powers, which I don't. So they would try to take me to all the hard cases in their villages. And after we had visited with one particular family, the translator said, now we will take you to the baddest man in the village. I said, why is he the baddest man in the village? And I'm not sure that's such a good idea. And they shared that they had been praying for him for a really long time, that he lived alone, that he was bitter, that he was angry, that he had done awful things to the Cuban people that even he shouldn't mention that his family had left him. So we walked up to his porch. He allowed us to sit down with him, and he began to share his story about how he had abused his family how they had fled from him to the United States and now the pain of loneliness had set in. And I thought, yes, thank you, Lord, a gospel win. And I was able to share with him that sin not only separates us from the ones that we love, but sin also separates us from the one who loves us, God. That because we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves, We have been separated from God. And as a result of that, there is death, there is pain, there is loneliness. But there is good news. There is one who came. And he provides grace for sinners like me and you. And he offers us a new record. The record of Jesus, his righteousness. He offers a new heart to take our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. And he promises us a new world when Jesus comes back. And he's going to eradicate it once and for all of all sin. And we will dwell in that house forever. And as I looked at him, tears were coming down his eyes. And he repented of his sins. He professed faith in Jesus Christ. You see, grace is still breaking through to Judas, to Tamar's, to you, to me. That was the message and the mission of Jesus That is the message and the mission of McLean Presbyterian Church. This is a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, even in this text, thank you for showing us the darkness of a world without you. 
that sin exists not only out there, but sin exists in here. And thank you for providing not just a surface solution, but one that goes to the root. Thank you for sending your son Jesus over 2,000 years ago to solve the problem of enmity between God and man. Lord, thank you that we have a redeemer, a savior, a shepherd who clobbers us with grace so that we are brought into the family of God. Father, make this true in our lives. Make this culture true in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.